And as has already been said uh, this evening, we're continuing in our series looking at explaining Easter. So this is the third uh, lesson that we have uh, from, from explaining Easter. We've already considered um, Cleophas and Pilate. Uh, so, so Caiaphas was, was the Jewish leader and Pilate, uh, of course, was the Roman leader who sentenced Jesus to death. So we've already been considering the run-up um, to the cross. And now this evening we're coming to look at the person of John, uh, that being the disciple John, son of Zebedee, um, and supposed to the other well-known John of the Bible, John the Baptist. So this evening we'll be spending time looking in, in John chapter 19 and into John chapter 20, looking at two key passages, one of John at the cross and the other of John at the empty tomb. So as we come to these passages, there are passages which for many of us this evening will be very familiar to us. Uh, passages that we've heard maybe many times before, but I would encourage you as we read this passage together to, to be curious of it, to be ready to ask questions of the passage, um, to almost look at it with, with new eyes and think if I was reading this for the first time, what would jump out at me? Um, a strange or unusual or something I would want to question. So reading from John chapter 19 and starting um, from verse 16. It's John chapter 19 and starting at verse 16. Then he delivered him to be crucified. So they took Jesus and led him away. And he, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of a skull, which is in Hebrew, Golgotha where they crucified him with two others with him, one on either side and Jesus in the center. The Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross. And the writing was Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Then many of the Jews read this title for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Hebrew, Greek and Latin. Therefore, the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the King of the Jews, but he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to each, part, to each soldier apart and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam woven from top in one piece. They said, therefore, amongst themselves, let us not tear it, but cast lots. Whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled which says they divided my garment amongst them and my clothing they cast lots. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. And now coming to verse 25, which is the, the particular section we'll be focusing on, first of all. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to his disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his home. And then, just to start us off, we'll read also in John chapter 20, uh, starting at verse 1, where we'll be looking at the empty tomb. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went out 
and the other disciple, and they were both going to the tomb. So they both ran together, and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying there. Yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. And he saw the linen clothes lying there, the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had come to the tomb first, went in also. And he saw and believed. For as yet they did not know the scriptures that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. So as we read this passage together, there's a number of questions that immediately jumped to my mind. Why was John at the cross of Christ? Why was Jesus even on the cross? Why did Jesus die? Why was the tomb empty? Why are these things even recorded for us and why are we talking about them tonight well one of the things i love about john's gospel is uh, in a similar way to when you're in school and you went to the back of the textbooks and many of the answers were there when we turn to john's gospel john gives us the whole the whole reason why he records his gospel and if we were to look down to john chapter 20 and verse 30 to 31 and truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So if you hold on to that last verse, but these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That'll be really useful as we frame these verses um, for us this evening as we look at them. So starting first of all with John at the cross. So chapter 19, uh, and starting at verse 25, we see uh, this, this exchange from Jesus at the cross. This is one of the seven sayings of the Lord at the cross. And I think this, this saying of Jesus to his mother and to the disciple are a demonstration of his humanity, the humanity of Christ as he suffers on the cross, that the word made flesh, as we read in John chapter 1 and verse 14, that the word made flesh had close relationships. He had people around him who he cared about. He had people around him who he loved and he cared for. And I'm sure as he was on the cross looking down to see them as, as a human, I'm sure that that was of great meaning to him. And as we'll now look to explore the relationship between Jesus and the disciple who is recorded as the one whom he loved. So who is this unnamed disciple that we come across in verse 26? The disciple whom he loved standing by. Well, the surprise might already have been ruined for you in that we're considering John this evening and the disciple whom Jesus loved is widely accepted to refer to John, the disciple John. And why is he referred to as the disciple whom he loved rather than John? Well, this, of course, is John's gospel, um, denoted by, by the name. And it was customary for writers in Bible times to not use their own name um, in, in, a, in a text they would write. So it was customary for ancient writers 
to omit their own name from texts. So this is why we see the reference to the disciple whom he loved rather than John's name being inserted in here. But in keeping with, with contextual norms of texts in that time, it, it is a, a fair assumption to, to ascertain that this does in fact refer to John. But I think there's some significance in, in the, the term that he used to refer to himself, the one whom Jesus loved. So why was John at the cross? Simply put, Jesus was a close friend. Jesus was someone who he had watched, John had watched teach and perform many miracles for, for a number of years preceding this. They had traveled together, they had ate together, they, they had seen all of these many signs and wonders performed by Jesus. And moreover than just being one of the, the many thousands who gathered at events such as the feeding of the 5,000, or indeed one of the 12 disciples who followed Jesus on his ministry here on earth, John was one of the, the inner circle, one of the Lord's inner circle of trusted followers. We see this reinforced by the accounts such as Jairus' daughter in Luke 8, and Luke chapter 8 and verse 54, where there's three invited into the house and John is one of them. And we see it also reinforced in the Garden of Gethsemane, where Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, John and his brother, are both invited by the Lord to accompany him to the garden. And indeed, moreover, we see this reinforced by, by the text that we have just read together, that Jesus saw fit to commit his mother into John's care. Now, we won't be focusing this evening on the relationship between um, the Lord and his mother or, or the saying to, to his mother, behold your son, as Mika will be covering that character off next week. But there is a closeness between this relationship. We see that denoted, as we've now seen from, from the title that John gives himself, and by these examples of where the Lord has been at work um, while John has been with him. Jesus had impacted John's life. We see this in a number of ways. If we were to look back to the initial call of John, by the Lord in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 21, we would see that, that when the Lord called John and his brother, that they immediately answered the call of Jesus. They jettisoned social norms of following um, their, their career as, as fishermen. They set aside family and personal ambitions to follow Christ. And I imagine as, Lord, uh, as John was standing at the cross of our Lord and, and seeing him be crucified and put to death, there was many questions going through his mind. He, according to these accounts, is, is the only disciple to be standing near to the cross of Jesus. While the others have probably ran in fear and were hiding, we see John as the only one who is still standing near. But we should not be putting John off the back of that into some undue position. John's role in all of this was not to glorify himself, but to direct glory to Christ. John, in a sense, was like many of us. He was, he was sinful. He was fallen. He, he was not perfect like Christ. And we see maybe even suggestion of this 
from the name that he has given, Son of Thunder. Let me refer to his temper. But there was a reason why he followed Christ. He had seen who Christ was, and he believed who Christ was. Jonah set aside all earthly gain to follow Christ. He set aside what was accepted and what was normal. And as I was reading through this passage, I was challenged myself, and I'll challenge you together this evening. What does it cost you to follow Christ? Are you still following your own ambitions, climbing up a, a, a career ladder or trying to get a life of comfort? Or have you fully committed your life in the same way that John did when he was called and he immediately responded to the call of the Lord on his life? I think sometimes for us Christians in Northern Ireland, it can be very easy for us not to risk anything in our faith. So let me challenge you. What are you risking in pursuit of glorifying Christ and making his name known? Even in the, the account we see of John at the cross here, he was risking by even being at the cross, as quite often it would have been common for people to be arrested, and particularly men, if they were near an occasion like a crucifixion. So what, what is your faith costing you? Not that we buy our faith or that we can earn our faith, but as we set our, our lives aside to follow Christ, what are you risking in terms of following him? And I suppose the overarching question as, as we look at the account of John at the cross is, well, why was Christ on the cross? Why was this situation even unfolding for John to be part of? The disciples didn't really understand what was going on at this point. Jesus had told them that we see in Mark's gospel recorded three times about how he was going up to Jerusalem, about how the Son of Man was to be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. They would condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they would mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him in Mark chapter 10. But you see, the whole reason why Christ was on the cross was as, as was predicted or prophesied in, of, of times gone past, we see even back in Isaiah 53, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. He was there for our wrongdoing. He was there to take the punishment for our sin, to pay the price for our salvation. And that through that, we could be healed. One key thing to, to notice in John's account is that it, it varies from the three other gospel accounts of the cross. Now, taking that at face value, if, if I was to leave it there, that, that might potentially come across as a challenge. But rather than viewing the, the difference in the account we see of, from, from John and his gospel and the other three gospel writers, Rather than viewing that as a challenge to the authenticity, we should view it as, as an enforce, reinforcement of the authenticity of scriptures. You see, the reason why John's account is different to the other three gospel writers is that John was a first-hand witness. We see that in verse 35 of 19. And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you may believe. 
John was actually there. He was actually at the cross of Christ, standing with these women, whereas the other disciples were not. It's widely accepted that the other three gospel accounts all stem from the, the eyewitness account of one person, potentially one of the women who looked on, or potentially Simon of Cyrene who carried the Lord's cross, although we do not know. But if you were to imagine in the same way, if, if, I, if I was to take you to the High Court in Belfast and you were to go and listen to the testimony provided by witnesses, if you were to look at four witnesses provide their eyewitness account, even four people who had all been there, you would see variations between their, their testimony. You would see maybe even contradictions between what they said. If I was to stop this right now and have you right in front of me and say, what did I first say when I started this evening? I imagine even in the short 10 or so minutes that we've been here, you would all remember slightly differently. So just in the same way that there's variation between witnesses, we can see that that is the reason why there is variation here. So rather than seeing that as a, as a challenge, it would, be, it would be remiss for us to think that if, if this account that we read in Scripture was made up, that the four disciples wouldn't have sat down together and thought, if we're trying to mislead people, well, let's, let's align our stories before we start. So there's probably a middle ground, somewhere between, between the accounts. Maybe John started near the cross, as he records, and the other disciples who, who talk about the crowd being afar off, maybe John started near the cross, and then as the events unfolded, moved away. But rather than seeing these, these variations as contradictions, we should actually be able to see these as a reinforcement of the authenticity rather than the polished nature of Scripture. This isn't a, a man-made story um, that has been conscripted to try and fill us. This is a true account. So now moving on to, to the second uh, passage that we read in chapter 20, John at the tomb. These events unfold off the back of, of Mary running to Simon Peter and John and saying that they have moved the Lord's body, that it, that it is not there. You can almost feel the palatable sense of, of tension and anticipation as they, they spring into action to, to seek answers to what has happened. John was physically there. He saw it with his own eyes, that the Lord had died, that the, the, the spear that had pierced his side was evidence of that. And he had been buried in a new tomb with a Roman guard posted at the door. And the stone had been rolled over and sealed with a Roman seal. How could he possibly not be there? I wonder whether even the, the accounts of what he had seen with, with the Lord while they were at at Jairus's daughter and how the Lord raised her from the dead or how Lazarus was raised from the dead by the Lord. I wonder were these accounts coming to his memory because he had seen the Lord was dead with his own eyes. But as we see in verse nine, when they're at the tomb, it's recorded as they did not understand that he must rise from the dead. Jesus had told them that he would rise from the dead. Could it possibly be that their Lord had risen from the dead? And we see in the text when, when he arrives, John looks in. He doesn't enter. He doesn't dare to enter. He looks in to see what has happened. And the first thing he observes is that, that the grave clothes are still there, which rules out any possibility of a robbery, of a grave robbery where 
It would have been common in those times to steal the body, not for the value of the body, but for the grave clothes. But the grave clothes are sitting there, so that can't be an option. And then he also notices when Simon Peter arrives that some of the grave clothes are folded. And I wonder, did he maybe pick up on the symbolism of, of folding something within that society? If you were to fold a napkin at a meal today, it would signify to, to the, your host that you were finished. Whereas if you were only taking a bit from your meal, you would just set it by the side of your plate. But a folded napkin can quite often represent that you are finished to your host. And I wonder, is there something in that, that as, as the, the, the cloth was folded, that it symbolized how the Lord's work on earth was done? that he had lived a perfect life, that he had died our death, but he had risen from the dead. This is crucial for us. This is crucial for us as we consider Easter. This is crucial for us in our everyday Christian faith. That the work was finished. There was nothing more had to be added. The price had been paid. But crucially, we read that John believed in verse 8 of chapter 20. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also, and he saw and believed. John was able now to, to believe Mary's account that he had risen, that, he, that the body was no longer there. But he was able to believe because he had now seen what the Lord had told him. John believed, though he didn't yet understand. And I wonder this evening, have you believed Maybe you quite don't understand everything about the Christian faith. But I wonder, have you believed? Believed, as John records later in chapter 20, believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So as I close now, we see from John, not an example that points glory to himself, but an example that points glory to Christ. A life lived out in following Christ and a faith built upon a risen saviour. So let that be our challenge this evening, to live out our lives in following Christ and to build our faith upon a risen saviour and his complete and finished work. Let us pray together. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you for how we can read it and, Father, how we can understand it. And, Father, even I thank you for the opportunity to join together online here this evening. Father, as we consider the cross and how John was there and he was an eyewitness to these events and has recorded them so that we can understand them, Father, and trust in you, that by believing we might have life in your name. Father, I pray that for any of us who are holding back in our Christian faith, that, Father, we might be prepared to jettison cultural norms, that we might be prepared, as John was, to follow you, to give our lives wholeheartedly in your service. And, Father, I pray for any who have yet not believed, that, Father, they may believe that you are the Son of God, that, Father, you sent your Son to die in our place. And as is recorded in Isaiah chapter 53, that you were crushed for our transgressions and that through your wounds we are healed. 
So, Father, I commit these words to, to you this evening. I, Father, I pray that nothing that has been said uh, might continue to work in minds and hearts tonight. Amen.